0: We're pitting two 80s horror icons together on this script to screen. It's slasher versus slasher as we pit Freddy Krueger against Jason Voorhees with Mark and I talking about their respective franchises starting with their original movies. Remember, you can join the Boston Screenwriters Group by meetup.com and RSVP for an online screenwriters forum, peer-reviewing scripts giving feedback on fellow writers' work while networking with them as well. Please check out the links in our anchor.fm profile to follow us online. We hope you can log in with us in one of these virtual forums. Until then, enjoy the podcast. I want to give a warm welcome to screenwriters, aspiring writers, film lovers, and everyone in between the latest episode of Script to Screen, the Boston Screenwriters Group podcast, hosted by myself, Jeffrey Chang Stewart, and Mark Liddell, where we come in and give screenwriter, filmmaker, and film lovers perspective on movies and various other forms of media-related topics. Whenever you're giving us a listen morning or night, we hope to be a great part of your listening cues. We know the world is a little off-kilter at the moment, but we hope to be a good part of the good stuff in your day with these in-depth discussions on film, TV, streaming, and other things we love. I'll start out with the intros. I've been a co organizer of the Boston Screenwriters Group for over five years, helping out the founder, Deborah Sharif, with the meetups where we help any level of experienced screenwriter peer review the screenplays with other members. I'm also a local filmmaker on the lower end of budgets, but I'm also, but I'm always up for coming up with movie ideas and ready to film. Now, with all that said,
1: I'll pass it off to my good friend, Mark Liddell. Hey, everybody. It's Mark Liddell, longtime Boston educator, lover of film. Um, at one point in my history, was involved in some repertory theater as well as uh film projects through friends who were in film school. Um I've always wanted to be a filmmaker, become one. Um I haven't have yet to, to realize that goal of mine. But one thing I'm realizing today is the opportunity to talk about um what was one of my first loves, which is uh the genre of horror. So without that, without any And with that, let's get into the discussion.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to make it. uh, I think this is going to be a quick one. It's only uh, Mark and I were able to make it in today. But I think we have a good topic to talk about. Uh, We decided to compare a couple of 80s sort of uh, classic staple slasher movies uh, that do uh, sort of their own thing within that genre. Uh, The First Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, Friday the 13th. And uh, so, yeah, these are two sort of staples, uh, especially this time of year. Uh, they certainly made an impact, uh, when they first came out in the early eighties and since since. there were many, 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 many follow-ups and uh, remakes and reimaginings, but, uh, we thought it'd be good to sort of compare the two or talk about, uh, the two in sort of, uh, a meaningful way, but, uh, yeah, I,
1: I guess, yeah, Laura, if you want to start, yeah, you're free to yeah, sort of, well, being that I am, um, A a child of the 80s, uh, born in 1970, um, and which put me kind of square in this kind of the wheelhouse of of the the 80s slasher uh, genre in my double digits, Um, Friday the 13th for me was it. Um, We know that what preceded it in terms of slasher movies uh, was Halloween. Black Christmas, which is also a 1970s slasher movie. And some even say, Psycho is, a, is the very first uh, slasher movie. Um, I think it's a little that's mm, difficult to say, even though of course uh, the, the Bates character, sorry for spoilers, uh, kills uh, folks in that movie. Um, there's something different about the Halloweens and the Friday the 13th and, and the, the Freddy's, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Um, Psycho's more of an an auteur, it seems, it's a Hitchcock movie. Um, Black Christmas might be, in my mind, the first modern slasher, and then we get into Halloween and Friday the 13th. Well, Friday the 13th was was really kind of piggybacking directly off of the success of Halloween. Um, And what made Friday the 13th different was that they set it at Camp Crystal Lake where you have this kind of um, almost endless supply of, of teens serving as counselors uh, and getting into mischief, um, who would serve as, as fodder for the killer in the first movie. Um, spoiler alert, for those who've not seen the original Friday the 13th, the killer in that movie is not Jason Voorhees. Um, it's Jason Voorhees' mother. She's actually on the, the grounds of, the, of Camp Crystal Lake to seek revenge for her son, Jason, who had drowned um, in the lake. And she blames the counselors because they did not tend to him or didn't um, notice uh, that he was drowning or, or revive him, whatever her rationale is. He died, I'm gonna pay, you know, get payback for my kid. Well, Friday the 13th um, kind of set the tone in ways that Halloween didn't, um, it almost, you know, I always talk about, and in, in I look at movies, um, a certain pacing or rhythm to them. There's a certain kind of metronome that, that, that you can put on certain films. And, and it's the case with Friday the 13th too. I almost wonder if um, the folks who made the movie say, okay, every X number of minutes, you have to have some blood, so a, a kill happen. Um a little bit in the first, but much more in the subsequent movies, the sequels, there is that metronome, but you see it start in the first one. There was a mystery, like who's the killer? Who's doing this? We find out it's Ms. Voorhees. There's the classic um, killing of Miss Voorhees at the end. Um, and that really, in my mind, contrary to popular belief around Halloween, I think that starts the trend, I think, of the teen slasher film. Um, where there is this the kill count is high and they don't care really about um the complexity of the story the relationships in the story um Halloween kind of the movie that, that preceded it is kind of linked to the relationship between mike michael myers and and uh the strode lori strode character there's none of that in Friday the 13th of course there is a the final girl and then she kind of reappears in the second movie briefly but um yeah, it's about, it's about kill, 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 as the uh, background noise says. Kill kill kill, 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 So that's my Friday the 13th kind of uh, analysis from the very first, I guess, to the second movie. Um, and you've seen Friday the 13th, have you not, um, Jeff?
0: Oh yeah, I've seen the OG. I've seen the original 1981. Uh, and i only recently uh, realized that oh it's actually supposed to be a period piece and it's supposed to be taking place in 1957 i only just recently realized that uh of course uh sort of uh uh anything made before you were born is sort of uh, sort of all, sort of gels together in sort of this weird amorphous sort of uh time frame but um yeah the uh, uh sort of this is what um sort of what uh, uh, kicked off the slasher phenomenon in the 80s. And uh, wow, were there a ton of uh, imitators and a ton of people trying to cash in on this because uh, as they found out, uh, you can do these movies on the cheap, quick and dirty, and you can make a ton of money and, and return in the theaters by scaring teen, uh, you know, uh, teens seeing themselves being killed on screen. So uh, it sort of became a genre unto itself and uh, uh, continued on uh, it has uh, had several revivals over the last uh, decades or so with, uh, in fact, um, famously the uh, Scream in uh, 96 starts out with uh, Drew Barrymore incorrectly not get remembering that uh, it's Mrs. Voorhees that uh, is the killer in the first uh, Friday the 13th, not Jason. So, uh, of course, there's the linkage there with uh, sort of uh, slashers of the past. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, it's... It's, it's interesting sort of uh, all these sort of uh, independent movies when they're made and uh, uh, because uh, you get no sort of um, Hollywood glamour. You don't get any gloss. It's just, again, it's just quick and dirty. It's uh, maybe not too many takes, I'm guessing, <laughs> not, uh, on set. Uh, they just wanted to get this out uh, fairly quickly. Uh, it has, uh, shall we say, a um, puritanical uh, sort of sensibility with... Uh, promiscuous teens and all, all the ones that uh end up having sex end up getting killed sometimes during sex uh sort of uh, as a really um driving home sort of uh sort of the sensibilities of the time but uh uh to the extreme of of course the ends but uh yeah i i do uh I, I and uh I think we'll we'll get into it but sort of uh, Sort of diminishing returns, both in the series and both in the many, many uh,
1: reimaginings and the imitators that have come since then. Yeah, you're talking about these kind of shoestring budgets, and and how um, then and and now, I guess with the Blumhouse kind of pictures, there there is the trend that you can just you know throw a little bit of cash into the horror genre and make your money over many fold. Um, it has always been one of the more profitable. Uh, genres because they don't they don't often require uh, a big name to kind of headline the movie um and as you mentioned there are very few takes um for a number of reasons i think one big piece is because of especially in the 80s you're talking about a lot of practical effects special effects you really can't afford to you know have too many tankers of, of blood come in and, and uh um paint your set with uh the the blood of it, those who have passed. Nor do you have money to pay for the prosthetics and whatnot. So it's a to it's a once or twice, and that's it. It's our, our our shot at kind of catching this image or this scene. So that makes them highly profitable. There's always you know uh, something like a teen audience who wants to see these movies, especially this time of year. We're, we're in October now, um, and you know. Which is the as is the case, the the majority of the audiences tend to be that younger demographic. So if you can attract the younger folks, and, and horror movies often do, um, you have a pretty good chance of making your money back. Um, I would say one thing that that horror has done is it's been very creative in terms of. Um, and this goes back to a constant theme I think for us recently is the marketing, right? So it doesn't take much to market these movies. Um, I remember being a kid listening to the radio in the car, riding around with my parents and all of a sudden, you know, after some song comes on, there's, a, there's an actual commercial, audio commercial for a movie. They're always the horror movies that the audio commercials um, that have those really, you know, almost in lieu of a lot of television commercials because they were cheaper. And they just took you hearing certain sounds or hearing certain screams in the commercials and like, oh wow, I'm gonna check that out. Yes, they still had TV commercials and they had the trailers in the movies as well, but they, they really focused a lot on the radio um, and that allowed them to to, to market the movies um, more easily. Because you, all, you, all you do is, is kind of pique someone's interest, a young person's interest and they're gonna go check out this movie. Also with that, you know, especially with Friday the 13th, there was this kind of taboo aspect of it um it was these are often rated r movies um, we're talking about they all are the friday the 13th um i believe um and for people who are young they're like "Ooh, i'm gonna sneak in to see friday the 13th or i'll get my parent to buy a ticket for me if i'm a young teen um so it was, there was that aspect to it and then you add in the um friday the 13th um some tnas that a summer camp and you've got girls in bikinis or folks you know engaged in sex in the cabins or whatever taking their clothes off and that attracts teens as well. So one thing they did extremely well in this um franchise Friday the 13th um either better than Halloween or Halloween didn't even really try it much at all. They even they had, they had sex scenes they weren't trying to aim with the TNA market. If they used the TNA, they used great marketing over the radio for for Friday the 13th. Um And I recall in the mid eighties watching a a television show, the Phil Donahue show. And when Friday the 13th was kind of at its height, I'd say early to mid eighties, there were parents coming out um, protesting the movie saying they were demonic, that they had some kind of satanic element to them. And they're luring kids into this underworld. And that was part of the, the the allure too for for teens, especially during what was the height of also heavy metal era and the height of um kind of the shock rock era. It was this evil that could be bring kids luring kids in? Uh, yeah, just um,
0: yeah, it's sort of uh, free advertising. Whenever you see. Uh, You know, uh, family or faith groups sort of protesting anything that's sort of gives you sort of gives whatever you're protesting sort of free advertising, sort of uh, free press. uh, Whenever, uh, whenever that happens, whenever the uh, sort of the the demonstrations sort of start against you know the uh, the purity and um, uh, innocence of uh, childhood is being completely stolen on screen and, and whatnot. Uh, yeah, I know it's it's kind of, it's been a theme the last few weeks with us uh, about marketing and uh, you know that's interesting. I did uh, realize that uh, sort of the big draw or the big uh, method uh, sort of uh, uh, back in the early '80s was sort of radio, and uh, you know, of course, uh, of course, uh, radio is still around, uh, you know, right here and sort of, but it's more uh, internet based and uh, more uh, uh, more uh, geared towards. Um, uh, We'll
1: get, we'll get to the uh, uh, internet audience, but... Um, well, there is this one thing, like an interject, about the radio marketing, which um, gave it a lot more latitude, which is if you're showing a commercial, you're, you're showing what's happening in the movie, and it could be a gruesome scene, one that, that's, that kind of garnered it the rated R uh, rating. On the radio, no one knows what, is visual you can hear a scream i've never heard of a scream being i guess uh too hot for the radio right or something you can't you can't play um maybe if you can't play a sex scene but you can certainly play someone screaming or you know the sound of someone being hit or uh the sound of a gunshot or whatever um in ways you really can't at least back then show on tv so it really gave it um a lot more latitude to to be freer with what was being heard and they even I would imagine augment or accentuate some of those sounds on the radio to make it that much more enticing i even remember hearing some sounds like where where is this sound coming in the movie doesn't come in they they've, they've kind of manufactured some for the purposes of promotion i know you yeah have, you go interject, ahead you know but you're no no, go, no no go ahead no no
0: i was i'm still gathering i was still gathering my thoughts but uh, yeah uh, so yeah, the, uh, using the sound and sort of, I mean, the, uh, uh the soundtrack has sort of, uh, become iconic, even though it's just as simple, as you said, just a simple it's just a very simple theme and it's a very, it, but uh, it works, it works with, uh, with what's on screen and it works sort of, uh, with, um, sort of, uh, the, um, the, uh, the use Again, the low budget aspect, it didn't really, it's not a huge orchestral score, it's not a huge bombastic sort of with uh, drums, percussion, string instruments, you know, sort of uh, a la um, Bernard Herrmann with Psycho, It's just a simple very simple score, but it, but it works. Uh, and, you know, I would guess that's sort of the theme of this. Uh, it's very simple, it's very stripped down, but it works. It, uh, it brought a lot of people in and made a huge return on investment. And, uh, you know, the horror genre since then has sort of been, uh, defined by these sort of movies that, uh, uh, are made on the cheap, quick and dirty, but they have a, there's, a there's an audience for those, you know, a la Blair Witch and, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of other sort of the uh um, well now we have sort of the A24 horror which is uh more geared towards the art house sort of crowd uh, and uh you know they're they're not mass marketed uh you know they they have uh, very little uh very little advertising but they have good word of mouth and people that do see them and are fans of these sort of movies that uh, delve into the psyche but uh, yeah i think you could see that the uh, roots of sort of uh, that idea of uh of uh, stripped down horror starting sort of right here in the 80s. And I uh, think that's a good segue to uh, uh, sort of Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, four years after the uh, first uh, 13th. But uh, yeah, this is sort of uh, Wes Craven's first claim to fame. Yeah, he did a uh, sort of um, a remake of uh, Ingharp Birdman's A Virgin Spring, but uh, Last House on the Left, that sort of put him on the map. But this is the one that probably most people, even with the screen franchise, attribute to him. Uh, just a terrifying idea—the the, the idea that even in your sleep, you're you know you're not you're not safe. You're not safe for your own dreams. You're not safe for your own imaginations. It's a great uh, great idea that uh, you know that was popular sort of in the '80s. You know the idea of uh, dreamscapes and the idea of uh, being able to interact with uh, different realities and all that. But in this one, of course, Wes uh, Craven uses that uh, to say that. Um, it can haunt you. It can kill you. You know, and uh, you know, uh, and it's very, it, it's very well done, uh, especially the uh, the first one. And again, as with a lot of these uh, movies, and a lot of follow ups and a lot of imitators, but I think the first one just uh, nails it in terms of both uh, the slasher aspect and uh, getting into sort of the psycho the psychology of uh, uh, of the characters and not
1: going in. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um... You know, Last House on the Left kind of opened the door for Wes Craven to make more films, but but it was this one, Nightmare on Elm Street, that kind of certified that he was bankable and allowed him to, to do a lot more um, after this. Um, from what I understand, um, the origin uh, or the basis of this story comes from, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, audience or Jeff, um, from an Asian, I think it was the Hmong, um, people, there was a a Hmong family in California, I believe. Um, And there was someone who, an Hmong family who claimed that there was this evil presence that was coming in his dreams. Um, And I don't know if that was a a Hmong kind of folk tale that kind of made its way to the Americas, or this is something that this one individual had expressed, but there was this fear of this this presence coming uh, at night in his dreams to attack him and, and his family. And that kind of served as the basis for the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, franchise. Um, of course, the idea of a a figure, a specter, a demonic force coming in your dreams is terrifying because we all dream, and if you could, you know, uh, convince people that you know when they're um, in their dream state. When they're kind of in bed at home in the confines of their own home in a place they think is safe and still be visited by someone who did not open the, the front door or break in a window that's scary as hell that it can just come into your head. Um, and then manipulate you via your own um, range of imagination right so he's only as scary as you're you can imagine um, that's you know nightmarish as well as nightmare on Elm Street um so. You know, at this point, when, when Nightmare on Elm Street uh, comes out, um, Wes Craven has the benefit of seeing the Halloweens, Friday the 13th, and then the slew of a lot of uh, other movies that come out these kind of one-offs, the Happy Birthday to Me, the um, um, Happy Valentine's Day, Mother's Day. These are all different types of movies that are kind of one-offs. He um, can benefit from all those and, and pick the best element uh, of them. And, you know, Craven was, was masterful in creating this uh, Freddy Krueger character who um, much like Jason mom, is seeking revenge, right? It's kind of vengeful uh, spirit um, and perfectly played by Robert Englund who will forever in my mind be Freddy Krueger although they've had um, a reboot of Jackie Earl Haley but in my mind is always Robert Englund as Freddy Krueger um, He just was Freddy Krueger. And he, he, of course, Robert Englund himself had been in a number of movies and television prior to that. um, Remember him vividly just prior to becoming Freddy Krueger, being on the television series, miniseries V um, about an alien invasion. And he's a a very well-liked, friendly character on that show. And you go from that to Freddy Krueger, was like, wow, this guy. um, I remember him from being this kind of um, meek, mild mannered character on that show and he's able to turn it on and turn it up for Freddy krueger um very iconic uh character but yeah wes craven um knocked it out the park with this one again on a shoestring budget um at the same time getting to people's heads and if i'm going to look at friday the 13th and we talked about marketing before and we talked about the, the sound the, okay, 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 okay that much like I mentioned last week with Candyman, there's a vector. This is a vector that, that delivers people. Um, kids would say on the playground, they play hide and seek. Key, 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 key. They'd be off in the woods somewhere, hiding with friends, running around. Key, 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 key. You know, So they created a sound from Friday the 13th that that allowed kids to promote the movie itself and by pretending to be Michael, not Michael, I'm sorry, being Jason Voorhees, in a way that Michael Myers never had that marketing. Um, And also um, Freddy Krueger, the idea that kids would be at a slumber party or they'd be at camp they'd say, oh, don't fall asleep, Freddy's gonna get you. That's a bit of marketing um, as well. This idea that if you go someplace and you're hanging out with friends in summertime or woods or sleepover, Freddie can come get you. Kids will to talk about that. That's marketing also for the Freddie characters. It was ingenious. He can come get you wherever you are. You can sleep in a park bench. He's coming to get you at home, hotel. Doesn't matter. He's coming to get you. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned sort of the inspiration of, uh, of West. I'm reading it actually right now. In fact,
0: just to go over because it came up on the sort of uh, uh, sort of on IMDb trivia. Uh, so the story goes that uh, yeah, what you, uh, you know, West Craven saw a couple articles in the LA Times that chronicled these uh, Cambodian refugees who were escaping uh, Pol Pot. Uh, they, yeah, if you want, if you want don't want, if you want to have a good night's sleep, don't read up about uh, Pol Pot's uh, regime, Cambodian regime. But uh, anyway, uh, so these three, I think it's, it's sometimes uh, it's a group of uh, three people, or sometimes it's a larger group, but uh, three men uh, in particular. Um, died from very mysterious causes uh, after coming here to the States, uh, escaping from Pol uh, Pot's regime, and the uh, story goes that one of them, uh, the first one, uh, suffered from extreme nightmares uh, from, uh, from, well, from a variety of what they experienced, uh, but uh, and subsequently died. And then the other, uh, the others in the group, uh, his friends, like refused to sleep for days on end, and uh, just even pushing through an extreme exhaustion. And uh, uh, that's the thing about uh, having a um, having a stalker that catching uh, you your sleep. You just you you have to be you have to sleep. You're just going. To, your body's just going to shut down eventually. And eventually, uh, all all the other uh, all the other uh, people that are around all the other oh, there's his other friends died in the same way, very mysteriously. And it has since been coined sort of, uh, Asia, uh, as uh, the medical authorities called it, uh, Asian death syndrome, <laughs> uh, uh, sort of um, just to make it spooky. So that's, yeah, the, the original inspiration is uh, like almost crowns for a good horror movie right there. Uh, but um, yeah, it, uh, I mean, this is sort of uh, uh, Wes Craven. sort of uh, uh, means he takes sort of like these... Uh, otherwise sort of, uh, lesser known stories or, well, not widely known, uh, stories, but sort of puts his own spin on them, you know, as with, uh, Last Toss and the with, uh, Ingmar Bergman and, um, uh, it, and especially with this one that, um, uh, and of course the screen franchise, it puts its own sort of spin on the slasher where the, uh, uh, all the teens are aware that they're in a slasher movie, which is a uh, interesting juxtaposition, but, uh, yeah. This. Uh, well, first off, I really do want to see sort of someone tackle that, uh, sort of see how much truth was behind the original story and the inspiration for this. But again, it just goes to show
1: uh, sort of real life can be just as scary as whatever uh, can be conjured up on screen. Right, right. Sorry for that. Um misstatement about Hmong. There wasn't, wasn't that, there weren't Hmong folk. These are
0: no 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 you were right. It was uh Hmong tribes yeah, yeah oh I was, I was right think, I but know. they were incorrect yeah but yeah but it came in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Yeah you were right. correct.
1: At least uh, as per IMDB so <laughs> all right so whew, okay I was hoping I didn't mischaracterize this but um yeah so this I wish they would kind of they, they, that backstory, that that source material, could easily be used to kind of promote the story of Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't know why they have not done that because you talk about you know previous horror movies, you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They say based on a true story, and it was not. <laughs> that was just for promotional purposes. But this is like you just wasted this it, it, this huge opportunity and talk about how, yes, this is, you know, based on a true story, maybe even um, there could have been, especially with, with the um, uh, Asian horror that's been, a, I'm surprised there's not been an Asian um, studio that's done this using that source material, making their own kind of Freddy, or their own person. We know, you know we've kind of borrowed, US has borrowed off of the grudge, um, and um, The Ring, Ringu, and all this kind of stuff. I'm surprised it hasn't gone the other way around. It's made a an Asian version considering that it has Asian Asian origins. Um, But yeah, that's a wasted opportunity. Maybe if they make subsequent movies, they'll tap into this, um, either the domestic uh, uh, nightmare franchise or something overseas. Um, I will say, interestingly, both franchises, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street because of their popularity ended up having their own television series as well. It was a um Friday the 13th TV series that had absolutely nothing to do with Jason Voorhees. It was about um Um, I guess these kind of small antique shop owners who would collect kind of possessed materials a la uh, The Conjuring that they've got, you know, these possessed items in their basement or whatever. But In this case, they're they're, they're selling these kind of uh, items from their store. Don't know why they're selling these possessed items, but they are, or collecting them. Um, I I think the the front was there an antique shop on the side to collect these materials, give them a, a reason to every single week go out and find these um possessed materials um an x-files-esque kind of thing fashion um and then there was the nightmare on elm street tv series that did feature robert england in it um he wouldn't be prominent but he would kind of like much like the crypt keeper in, in the, the the crypt the creep show he pu- kind of that creep show sorry the, the t- um tales from the crypt i'm sorry much like the crypt keeper in tales from the crypt um, he would introduce and kind of close out, and at times he'd pop in in the middle of, of the the show. Um, so it was a nice cash grab for him and also um, kind of piggybacking off the success. Um, a short-lived um, series, but it helped to certainly promote the, the movies that came out afterwards as well. Um, that's a, It's a unique distinction that those two both had TV series, even though one was not really tied to um, the lead, the only character that of of consequence in, in that movie, Jason Voorhees. That's
0: that's interesting. I had not heard of either of those series. Uh,
1: I don't know if they were... I don't know early, if they were really good... Early, late 80s, early 90s, yeah. Ah,
0: okay. There we go. So they're trying to cash in on uh, sort of uh, already cashing in on the 80s nostalgia with the, <laughs> in the 90s. But... Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned sort of uh, Robert England, and uh, yeah, I mean this is the role that he's known for. This is the role that. Uh uh, sort of has defined his career he's uh, a horror icon because of it but it's interesting in the at least in the, the original nightmare on island street he's not the quippy he's not the trickster sort of well he, he's not the quippy you know uh uh smart ass that he becomes sort of in the follow-ups he, he's much more he's much more quiet he's very uh he's just he's, but he just has this menacing presence uh you know he's um uh, there's the famous uh, sequence with the uh, long arms, you know, uh, kind of kind of engulfing the the hallway as he's coming closer to uh, to his victim. Like, uh, but it's and uh, it's, but he's much more quiet. And uh, of course, the quips and the uh, sort of the uh, the one liners don't come until the, the follow ups. But uh, in the first one, he really is just sort of like this menacing specter that just is going to come get you no matter what. Uh, 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 You know, know, there's no place to hide from your dreams. And again, that is is one of the scariest ideas in
1: horror, like uh, there's just uh, the no place to hide. And you mentioned before this kind of um, meta aspect that Scream um, took, kind of realizing that they're in, that they're they're using the the kind of horror tropes to try to defeat or at least run from uh, or or, uh, survive. I guess the movie. Something interesting happens in the third installment of Nightmare on Elm Street: The Dream Warriors. While they don't, while they don't know that they're in a movie, they do recognize that there is this character Freddy Krueger, and they kind of team up in a way to defeat Freddy. Like for you know, for, for much of um, slasher movies up until that point, it's been okay. Let's just escape. That's just, you know, and one by one folks are kind of knocked off. In this case, with uh, the Dream Warriors, the third installment of Nightmare on Elm Street, um, they find a way to to team up in their dreams to try to defeat Freddy Krueger. There's fighting back. You're not just, you know, this victim on the run. Um, Now, of course, they're not successful, (laughs) but but, um, it's it's a new spin on the, the slasher genre. The idea that folks will team up to defeat it, this thing—well, it's—it's it's, well, it. So they say it, like Stephen King's it. Of course, there's some of that in 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 the, the it book, but in terms of what's been been committed to to film at that point, there's been nothing um, that I can remember of uh, folks teaming up to defeat or try to defeat um, the evil slasher. There's always victims in in these movies and up until that point. And they're also extremely clever in the creation of that movie by having these characters really just types, I guess you would say, um, who have their vices. And Freddie kind of plays upon their various vices, being a drug addict or uh, someone feeling self-conscious about their level of abilities. Um, And, you know, they play on that also they've brought in um, who up until that point has been a a standard character uh, in the series, um, Nancy, who serves as um, a connection to the previous movies. And as somebody who's got some knowledge about Freddy that you can impart upon those folks trying to to attack Freddie. I must also mention that, um, you know, I I, I can't um, neglect to say that another kind of uh, key component of these movies, whether it's Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street, you, you name a lot of the franchises, is they'll introduce us to people who we'll see later on um, in other movies as much bigger stars. I mean, um, Patricia Arquette stars in the the the, the Dream Warriors at third installment. Mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon is in the original Friday the 13th, right? Um, and then there are people who just kind of pop in. And of course, there are other franchises that have big time actors and George Clooney was in a horror movie um, I think it's called Hell High. I think that's what it was called. And of course, there's also in um, Leprechaun, um, there is uh, Jennifer Aniston, right? So all the, the, the horror genre is famous for bringing people to four. It's giving them their first opportunities. They're, they're not big names. And what I've noticed in the Friday the 13th and the, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and other films is that when they're, having a release back in the 80s and 90s, a VHS release for the video stores or subsequent DVD uh, pressings. And I guess now we're just doing streaming. So there's not that same marketability, but that make the person who's now famous prominent on the cover. The one scene they're in, all of a sudden they got a, on a picture of the VHS box or the DVD container because, yeah, I know that's, you know, Kevin Bacon or, you know, that's Patricia Arquette and that, that draws in a few more eyeballs to, to, to that time of renting or buying the material. So that was a huge kind of tactic they'd use. Oh, so big time now? Let's just totally re-package um, this and put this person, you know, if not front and center, at least in the peripheries, you can make out, yeah, that is so-and-so. So that was also interesting around the, this kind of horror genre, the making of, not really making of, the acknowledgement of their stars once they have made it big.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that i yeah there's you know countless uh, countless stars that uh, started off in these you know just these very low budget horror movies you know for a uh, good reason because uh the, they're just starting out they don't have a lot of clout behind them they don't have a lot of uh, connections yet and uh you know this is this was the start for a lot of people and yeah uh, you mentioned a lot of other, johnny depp is in the first nightmare on Elm Street, and he has maybe the most impressive kill in the franchise um or one of the most imaginative kills in the franchise yeah, and we, we we've I guess we'll just we'll just do a quick sort of mention. But uh, yeah, as you said, the sort of these have had countless uh, countless series and countless uh, remakes, and uh, unfortunately, diminishing returns. And uh, I haven't seen the I didn't I never saw the remake of Friday the Thirteenth that happened you know ten years ago. Uh, but I did see uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, which came out around the same time, amazingly enough, uh, with. Um, you know, sort of a, a, a re, uh, sort of the revamped uh, sensibility, uh, or reimagining, if, uh, if if you will, the. Uh, but I uh, and yeah, it's not very good, I think. But I, I, they were trying to you know go back to the serious more. They, they were trying to make it more serious, but in doing that, uh, I think they they missed the mark. Um, um, yeah, it's just very hard to do a. A very self-serious uh, sort of uh, '80s homage of uh, slasher movies, without it coming off as just being off. And uh, I think that's definitely the case with uh, the remake of *Nightmare on Elm Street*. Uh, great casting with uh, Jackie Earl Haley. I think he dons the glove of Robert Englund very well, but uh, unfortunately, he's just not. Everything around surrounding him just is just kind of falls apart. It doesn't. It doesn't hold. It doesn't have that like. Uh, real terror that you did feel in the first nightmare on Elm Street. Um, there's uh, uh, there's jump scares aplenty. Oh boy, there's uh, a lot of jump scares aplenty in that. Uh, um, I fall for every single one of them, which is one reason why I don't like a lot of them in movies. So, uh, but um, I, yeah, just trying to. Uh, Again, yeah, I think we mentioned it. Just doing the original inspiration for nightmare Street would be fascinating. Uh, so I want some filmmaker to tackle that after just reading it right now. like that's it's a fascinating idea for sort of this uh you know eight uh, sort of uh, uh, an a 24 horror movie about uh, Cambodian refugees and uh, what they suffered and how that manifests in your psyche. I think that's that's a fascinating idea, a uh, way to
1: sort of uh, remake the franchise. Well, it could be you know, a prequel to, to the nightmare on Elm Street. So, so maybe Freddie was in Cambodia, or, or who knows? That's where you got his start. Maybe he was there, you know. Maybe Freddie Krueger, maybe you changed it to a French name because the French were <laughs> over there. Freddie was over there um tormenting people. Um and he was part of the Khmer Rouge. I don't know. But mm-hmm. but but um yeah, so so this, I just lost my point. I was going to say something. Sorry. Um, No, so it's interesting because the, of course, the Friday the 13th franchise precedes um, Nightmare on Elm Street. And by the time we hit that third Nightmare Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy is making a lot of puns and quips. Uh, Probably one of the more famous ones is where he takes one of the characters and Lifts her up into a television, slams her head into a TV. Just welcome to prime time, bitch. Um, so the 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 landscape has changed at that point. The audiences are wanting more than just somebody walking through the woods with a machete. They they want some kind of connection or relationship between the killer and the people, um, or at least some humor um, in there. Um because Freddy's introduced that by the third movie. So we start to see the the installments of Friday the 13th include a little bit of humor in them. Sick humor, but humor nonetheless. Um one of the more famous um bits of humor was the the kill where Jason um takes someone in a, a sleeping bag and slams up, slams them against a tree, kind of batters them inside the sleeping bag. Um, meant to be funny and other um Kill was again using a tree, someone pressing their face into a tree and there's a smiley face in there. And then these are the little kind of little things that they try to in, include in the the campiness at Camp Crystal Lake um, to make Jason up to speed or up to date with of the, the Freddy. Of course, Jason doesn't speak so you really can't have him use uh, lines. Um, but even when they took um, the series to, Um, outside of Crystal Lake to Manhattan, that was one big camp fest uh, there. I remember um, for a long time, the the kind of long standing joke from people in places like where I'm from, Detroit, was like, yeah, he can do that at Camp Crystal Lake. He can't take it to the hood. He can't go, he wouldn't come here and do that. So then we have this character um, in the Manhattan, Um, Jason goes to Manhattan, how um nightmare on, you know, I'm getting all confused. The Friday the 13th, part eight. Uh Jason uh takes Manhattan. Uh, there's a black character in there, the Jerry Curl, very thin guy looking like um, for those who know this, um, a very thin member of the, the musical group Full Force. <laughs> this is kind of a scrawny guy who's um inhabiting all of the stereotypical, you know, behaviors that one would expect of um uh, modern-day minstrelsy with black folk, and he's trying to take on um, Jason, and Jason, you know, is on top of a building with him, they're fighting, they're trying to duke it out, and Jason gives them one strong right hook and knocks the guy's head off of the building, and it falls down to the street or the alley or whatever, and that's the answer to all the folks who would say, Jason can't take it to the hood. I'm sure the folks who who created this knew about the buzz, because a huge part of the horror audience, at least in the 80s, has been um, people of color. And there'd been this piece about him coming to the hood. Now, of course, Manhattan, at least where they were, is not the hood. This is, they're in like Times Square. And of course, at that point in the 80s, it's also seedier than it is now. it still part of the, um, they still have the, um, the gentlemen's clubs in Times Square back then. I remember I'd been to the Times Square around that time and seen that as a kid, but, it's still not the hood it's not where, not where a lot of black folk or latinos reside it's still pretty um expensive part of town but that was their answer to that you couldn't do it in the hood and they they took that the campiness of it um obviously someone's head being knocked off and knocked into an alley or the street or whatever the look on his face of shock or an awe um was meant to be funny um to to that I'm just saying they're trying to deal with um The emerging, um, well, at that point, no longer a challenger, probably the champ, it would be Freddy Krueger at that point, because he'd won over the audiences in ways that Jason had not. Jason was stale and old. Freddy was uh, at his peak at that time, but but, uh, would soon get old as well.
0: And we got the versus movie with them, so Freddy versus Jason. So I mean, uh, we got to settle the uh, we got they got to settle the score sort of on screen uh, with them. But um, yeah, you, you mentioned sort of uh Jason takes uh, Jason X is also just a fascinating sort of uh, entry because it's Jason goes to space and uh, you know they're trying to do sort of this alien knockoff uh, with uh, with, uh, with Jason Voorhees. Uh, and it's hilarious. It's like, um, you don't know how much they wanted you to take it seriously or how you know serious they were trying to be, but uh, in the end, it just sort of uh, it just it's sort of a camp classic, whether intentional or not. But uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. you mentioned sort of the changing relationship that audience members had with uh, these slashers and how they were portrayed. Because, uh, as I said, uh, sort of in the first Nightmare Mary Elm Street, he just, uh, uh Freddy's this menacing presence. Uh, doesn't say a lot, uh, says maybe a few lines here or there, but uh, yeah, he doesn't become the quip master until uh, the follow-ups uh, when we want a more sort of a relatable sort of slasher uh, in the follow-ups. Um, and uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's sort of the, uh, giving more of the, the vicariousness that uh, people want uh sort of uh, uh living through the you know instead of the slasher being the villain and the thing that needs to be defeated now we want to sort of uh live vicariously through them almost i don't uh uh with uh being able to just uh uh take out whoever we want or I, I don't know but uh yeah it's an interest. it's a fascinating uh sort of uh sort of run if you were to just binge through the entire uh, Friday the 13th and the, uh, Fre- and the Nightmare on Elm Street series.
1: You know, the funny thing is you know, with those quips and puns that, that, that Freddie would use and the audience would kind of relate and laugh along. For that reason, I always found the Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers that much more terrifying because you can't talk to them that you can kind of have a conversation with with Freddie and maybe possibly reason, maybe, with him. There's none of that with uh, Jason Voorhees. He's he's, he's a killing machine. That's what he does. There's no conversation. There's no jokes. Um, He sees you. If he can can get at you, he will. Um, There's nothing you can do to negotiate your way out of this. Um, And, you know, Freddie, on the other hand, would kind of toy with, with people at times joke with him, laugh. Of course, it'd be maniacal, um, but he could do that. So I I think where there's an opportunity to communicate, there's an opportunity to possibly (laughs) make your way out of the situation. Um, So for everything that that, that Jason Voorhees was before there was the kind of humor involved that, which was of course a result of the the Freddy movies, um, I still think Jason's more terrifying. Now the method of how, you know, Freddy kills is more terrifying. He pops in your dreams. As long as I don't go near Crystal Lake or or Manhattan, I guess I'm okay not being around Jason. Um, Because he's he's a physical being that has to, you know, chase you. I mean, otherwise he just uh, teleport himself places like Freddy kind of does in people's dreams. Um, So in that sense, Freddy's terrifying because he can pop up any place, anywhere you are, he can be because he's in your head. But in terms of having, um, having one of those two in front of me, Jason, for me, is much scarier. And I, I do have, but I've not pulled out for the season yet, my Funko uh, Jason Voorhees doll. Because for me, he's you know um, one of the ultimate taboos from my childhood. Um, I was at the age where I wanted to see the movies. I heard the, the radio commercials, saw some on TV, saw even some trailers. Um, I was too young to go see them, but would catch them um, on VHS, uh, or they'd come on television. Uh, check them out there, I'd go to a friend's house who had cable. We didn't have cable. My parents said, "No, we're not doing that." There's all kind of stuff you shouldn't be seeing on cable. So, so the taboo element that that really made um, horror just my thing. So, as a kid, say, that's my jam. I love horror because it had been for me taboo, and because I was raised in what, what is. As the golden age of the slasher film so much so that for my parents and folk like that they think of slasher being synonymous with horror to the extent that they can't understand or conceive that a um, silence of the lambs is still horror or that things that don't involve of course there's killing in silence of the lambs, but it's not the same as a, a jason or a freddy's a slasher film if you will and some folk think that there must be um, killing and gore for it to be a horror movie. Well, that's not the case at all either. So could the slasher films of the 80s and, and the fact that they were at their zeitgeist then redefine what a horror movie was in the minds of so many people that they can't comprehend what horror is without that, those elements.
0: As always, thank you for queuing us up in your daily playlists. We hope you had a great time listening to our discussion on these horror icons of the 80s. We have more in store for October as we'll be covering the hit Netflix series Midnight Mass next time on Script to Screen. Feel free to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. You can support this podcast and the Screenwriters Group with a monthly donation by clicking the support button at anchor.fm. You can join Kenyatta and I at our virtual Screenwriters Forums by RSVPing either on meetup.com and or Facebook. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch our forum recordings and other videos. Links are in the description. We wish you all the best in your writing and other life's pursuits. Get vaxxed, stay masked, and be safe out there.